1: to the Inner Pratt Free Libraries Writer's Live Series. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Pratt Library, and on behalf of the CEO, the Board of Directors and Trustees, I bring you warm greetings to this, to this evening's program. So without further ado, our um, Chief of Programs, Kelly Shimabukuru, sorry, will introduce our featured speakers. Thank you, Vivian. Can you hear me? Because I can't, okay. Um, good evening, as Vivian said, I'm Kelly Shimabakuro, Chief of Programs and Outreach at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us in the African American Department of the Central Library, and welcome to a special Writers Live. Tonight, we're honored to have Elizabeth Schmidt discuss her new book, Foreign Intervention in Africa After the Cold War, and Refugee Resettlement in Baltimore with Akalu Palos. After the conversation, we'll have a Q&A, then we will have time to mingle and buy books from the Ivy Bookstore. We're podcasting the event, so during the Q&A, please wait for one of my colleagues to come to you with the microphone. Elizabeth Schmidt is a professor emeritus of history at Loyal University in Maryland. She received her PhD from the University of Wisconsin and has written extensively about US involvement in apartheid South Africa, women under um, colonialism in Zimbabwe, and the national movement in, in Guyana, and foreign intervention in Africa from the Cold War to the War on Terror. In foreign intervention in Africa after the Cold War, Elizabeth Schmidt provides a new framework for thinking about foreign political and military intervention in Africa its purposes and its consequences. She focuses on the quarter century following the Cold War, which is 1991 to 2017, when neighboring states and sub-regional, regional, and global organizations and networks joined extracontinental powers in support of diverse forces in the war making and peace building processes. During the mid-1980s, Akalu Palos has been an active participant in development programs as a practitioner, consultant, and researcher, working for public, nonprofit, and international multilateral governmental organizations in Ethiopia. In his capacity as a refugee program manager for Baltimore City Community College since July 2012, he has facilitated the linguistic, economic, and civic integration of more than 4,000 refugees resettled in Baltimore. He earned his master's in developmental studies from the University College Dublin, in Ireland and has extensively written and spoke on issues of human rights, gender, governance, and civil society as international conferences in four continents. Please give a warm welcome to Kalu and Elizabeth Schmidt. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to move to the podium in a second.
2: Um, Um, I'm going to move to the podium in a second, but I just wanted to thank you all for coming. I see a lot of my friends, neighbors, dance partners, colleagues in African history, and then many other people, some who work with refugee resettlement, and others um, from the concerned public, and hopefully I'll find out a little bit more about you and your background and um, what, what's brought you here um, uh, tonight. I, I just, besides thanking you for coming, I want to say how special it is for me to be able to do this presentation with Akalu, um, who has been absolutely central to um, refugee resettlement efforts in Baltimore, which you may know is is um, um, a very important hub for refugee and asylee resettlement Um, in the United States. Um, It's something that Baltimore has been very intentional about, realizing that immigrants of all kinds really can help to build a stronger community, which we all need. And um, um, the reason I think it's so wonderful to to join our efforts tonight is because I'm talking about conflicts in Africa uh, and the role that outsiders have played in fomenting, sustaining, and intensifying those conflicts and many people don't recognize and I suspect that most of you do but many other people don't recognize the link between those conflicts with outsider involvement and the massive migration of humanity that, that we're experiencing um, and therefore how it resonates right here at home um, and so that's what um, I, I'd, li- I'd like to set up the scene by talking about the, the issues in my book and then colleague will take it from there and talk about Um, how it resonates in Baltimore. (laughs) That's okay. Okay. Now, um, when, when people hear the word Africa, and here I mean people who aren't necessarily specialists in African history or African American history, but it often conjures up an image of a continent in crisis, riddled with war and corruption, and imploding from disease and starvation. Moreover, Africans are often blamed for their own plight. So the motivation for my my book, this book and one that preceded it, was this sort of myth of why Africa uh, is in such a predicament. And it's one that I am often faced with um, as I teach African history to undergraduate students who come in with uh, media-generated images and with sort of the popular American culture images of Africa um, as this um, um, basket case, really, that has just... People haven't learned how to manage their own affairs. This is the way many Americans view it. Um, and so what I felt that was important to show was that many of the predicaments that Africa faces today are not solely the result of African decisions, but also the consequence of foreign intrusion into African affairs. So <clears throat> this book, um, as... Um, The introduction indicated focuses on the period after the Cold War, so the 1990s through um, the beginnings of the War on Terror. um, I actually carried the book through 2017, the first year of the Trump administration. Um... And it's a companion to an earlier volume that focused on foreign intervention in Africa during the periods of decolonization and the Cold War. Um, and so this would be the period after World War II, so from about 1945 through the end of the Cold War, about 1991. And so in a way, it's, it's background for... It's not volume one, volume two, but it's background for the scenario that I take in this, this newest book. Um, where in the first era, um, the foreign interveners tended to be former colonial powers that were trying to influence the economic and political direction of their former colonies. And also foreign interveners included the Cold War powers, superpowers like the Soviet Union and the United States, but also to a lesser extent China and Cuba and some other non-aligned players. Um, but they also had motivations for trying to influence the direction of Africa politically and economically. Um, so these two books really uh, work together. Uh, but as I mentioned, I'm, I'm trying to explode a popular myth, and so really the book is not intended for specialists. Um, um, if someone is a specialist in a particular country in North Africa... Um, my chapter on the Arab Spring and its aftermath in North Africa um, may not be news to them uh, if they're a, a, an expert on Mali or Somalia or Sudan, hopefully they'll agree with my assessment but I don't know that they'll learn anything terribly new from it. So really my focus is for um, uh, foreign policymakers, staffers of non-governmental organizations members of the media and the general reading public um, and my hope is to get this message out there. Um, I know books are being sold, and I, of course, would be delighted if you bought a book. But I'm not here to make money. I, fortunately, have had another source of income. I don't have to depend on that for my livelihood. And so my, my key motivation is to get the book out. And I know the Pratt, Pratt Library has it. Uh, if you want to borrow the book um, or get it some other way, that would be great. Um, um, but, but hopefully, you'll be motivated to delve a little further into the message that I'm giving today. So the book um, um, includes an introduction that lays out some of the issues that I've just described briefly uh, and then um, it includes a number of case studies that are intended to show that there are widespread patterns and trends, that this is not just something idiosyncratic about what's going on in Somalia or what's going on in Rwanda or the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But this, this um, implication of foreign intervention, uh, often fomenting conflicts, sustaining, intensifying, making them more lethal, is one that we can trace from east to west to central to southern and to North Africa and uh, in many, many different countries. So uh, that is another one of my, my goals. Now, during the Cold War, one of the main rationales for outsiders to intervene was the so-called communist threat. And those of you who've read about the Cold War, especially its impact on the global south, may be aware that um, the communist threat became a catch-all to justify any kind of intervention against any kind of political or economic movement that somehow... Um, negatively affected the interests of powerful countries, whether they be the former colonial powers or the Cold War powers. And radical nationalists who wanted to reorient the economies and the political situations of their countries to benefit their own citizens were often deemed communists, whether or not they were, and that was used to justify actions against them. Similarly, after the Cold War the new boogeyman is the terrorist threat. Um, And while there certainly is violent extremism that can be devastating and horrific, there are all kinds of groups that are being caught up under this rubric that are not part of these violent extremist organizations. And I do spend quite a bit of time talking about um, misunderstandings that many Americans have of Islam as well. And the distorted view that they hold that, that results in lumping together all Muslims, um, which is what the Trump administration has tended to do, um, under um, the same um, cloak as this very, very, very tiny minority fringe of violent extremists whose interpretation of Islam has been widely rejected by most Muslims worldwide and certainly by the religious leaders and scholars of Islam. So, um, this new terrorist threat is, uh, supposed terrorist threat, is one of the rationales for intervention. Another is a response to instability, um, um, which, you know, regional instability, um, and a corollary of that, the responsibility to protect civilian lives. So, those are the two main rationales for intervention response to instability, responsibility to protect civilian lives, and the war on terror, um, whether or not it's accurate or not. But regardless of the rationale for intervention, the external powers tend to intervene only where their own political, economic, and strategic interests are at stake. There are many, many places where intervention might happen but doesn't because theres not there aren't strategic minerals, there's no oil, it's not on a, a strategic location in terms of oil routes or um, the pathway to Europe, et cetera. Um, um, but there are many other places where intervention has taken place because those factors are there. But rather than promoting peace and stability as supposedly intended, foreign military and intervention has often increased outside support for repressive regimes exacerbated local conflicts and actually undermined prospects for regional peace poverty corruption and violent conflicts have devastated a, a number of African countries and many of the challenges facing the continent today are rooted in these uh, outsiders political and economic practices so um, I Don't want to take too much more time. I want to briefly mention one of the many case studies um, in the book um, um, just to give you a sense of the kinds of arguments that are being made. Um, Most of the book is these case studies after I lay out the argument, but the last two chapters, in case you're interested, focus on American policy in Africa uh, after the Cold War, so focusing on the Bill Clinton administration through the Obama administration especially, but then the first year of the Trump administration is also included. So that's the last two chapters of the book. Um, But certainly the United States is not the only country that's been (laughs) intervening. Now the case study I wanted to use sorry, um, is in the Horn of Africa. This is the horn. Uh, You can see the Indian Ocean, uh, the Gulf of Aden, the Red Sea. So that's, you can see the horn here. Now you can see it there. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, talking about the case study of Somalia, which wraps right around the horn, and Ethiopia is to the west, Eritrea is to the northwest. Um, <clears throat> now, foreign intervention in Somalia began, well, began with colonialism um, um, and even before. But um, the period that I'm really focusing on is the Cold War, and then especially the post-Cold War period. During the Cold War, uh, Somalia, under the leadership, the um, dictatorship of Siad Barre, Mohammed Siad Barre, um, um, played off the Cold War rivalry, allying first with the Soviet Union and then with the United States. Um, After the Cold War was over and the United States no longer needed him as a regional policeman, they suddenly... Um, recognized his human rights abuses and cut off all um, humanitarian aid, um, economic aid, uh, political aid. Uh, So clearly it was, um, you know, they just didn't need him anymore. And this is what happened to a lot of dictators who were supported by the West during the Cold War. They were cut off in the 1990s. And because they had repressed civil society institutions, there were often no political parties, Uh, opposition had been detained, Um, um, And so um, the removal of the, or, or the lack of support for the dictator meant that violent extremists, whether they be religiously based, clan based, politically motivated, but militias, warlords, rebels were able to overthrow many of these dictators. And what happened in Somalia in 1991 is the central government collapsed, the economy collapsed, uh, the formal economy, that is. Um, basic services were ceasing um, to function. And um, Siad Barre was quickly overthrown by warlords and their clan based militias. Um, Islamists who had been repressed by his regime also entered the fray and vied with the warlords for control. Um, And I'm going to try to abbreviate a lot um, uh, of this material. But um, um, what happened was outsiders became very concerned, especially by um, the Islamists. Now, the Islamists were, at this point, um, um, some of them were conservative um, religiously. Others were not. Um, But they did believe that Islam should influence all aspects of life, daily life, politics, etc., the U.S. tended to view them all as being al-Qaeda-like, uh, and that's far from the truth. What the Islamists did in Somalia is um, set up many basic services, including court systems, but also offering um, health, education, um, charities, etc., uh, where the government was no longer providing And many outsiders felt that they were doing a pretty darn good job under the circumstances. But because of the emergence of al-Qaeda, which again has some U.S. roots that I'm not going to go into now, um, but al-Qaeda in East Africa, um, the United States and its allies became very, very concerned. So outsiders, the West especially, helped to set up an internal government in Somalia that would counter the Islamists. Things really became a crisis in 2006 when the CIA teamed up with warlords and with neighboring Ethiopia to undermine um, the the um, Islamists um, in Somalia who who were gaining strength, and this resulted in a youth militia that had been protecting the Islamic courts becoming radicalized and um, um, uh, essentially um, an anti-foreign backlash. Um, this was exacerbated by an Ethiopian invasion in the, at the end of 2006, and Ethiopian occupation uh, through 2009. Um, this resulted in Al-Qaeda entering the fray where it had not been before. And this is something we see time and again. Al Qaeda and the Islamic State take advantage of the turmoil and the conflict and get a foot in the door. We saw it in Iraq. I mean, we're pretty familiar with that. Um, we saw it in Syria. Um, so, this is what happened in Somalia. And so, Al Shabaab went from being a youth militia protecting the courts to being part of Al Qaeda. Um, and um, waging um, a very successful war uh, for control of much of uh, central and southern Somalia. This went on until the African Union, the UN uh, decided to intervene. Ethiopia was still there. There's a long history um, of um, rivalry between and conflict between Somalia and Ethiopia. Um, Kenya also got into the fray, another neighbor, so we're seeing that the foreign interveners during this period are not just extracontinental powers, but often neighboring powers, uh, powers that are involved in subregional organizations like the African Union um, or even smaller groupings. And this intensified the conflict in many ways. Um, um, by the end of uh, 2017, when I was you know, finishing uh, my final revisions on the book, um, Somalia was still in pretty dire straits. Al-Shabaab is still there. Um, it's f- shifted its focus to softer targets. It's targeting countries in the region that were providing um, troops to, to put down the uh, insurgency. Um, and so um, this is something that we see repeated with Boko Haram in Nigeria, with the extremists in Mali. That that as the outside forces come in and quash the initial um, armed forces, they move out and focus on softer targets in in a, in a broader area. So uh, that uh, instead of doing the takeaway from Somalia, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with the takeaway uh for the whole book um, which um sort of is the uh, uh conclusion for the case studies writ large and then turn it over to uh, um Akalu to talk about refugees in Baltimore um, and and some of the um, opportunities and challenges they face so first um Five general observations. African actors are not absolved of all responsibilities for African problems. And here I refer especially to autocrats and their associates, warlords and violent extremists. Th- those two are African people, but they're not the vast majority of people. They, they are a small group, uh, an elite, uh, who are looking for power and privilege um, at the expense of... Uh, people in in, in these Af- African countries. So, um, so, so often we hear Africans, you know, without any kind of distinction, and I think that's very important. Second, the role of outsiders in stimulating, promoting, and sustaining conflicts in Africa has been critical to um, the origin and the endurance of these conflicts. Third, religion and ethnicity are not the root causes of African conflicts, while those factors have been uh, involved in many, they generally mask deeper structural inequalities that are the true source of the conflicts. That is poverty, underdevelopment, and the lack of opportunity. And finally, I haven't mentioned this, but I talk about it in the book, the devastating impact of climate change is behind many of these conflicts. Um, again, I won't go into detail, but I'm sure you've heard of the conflicts in Darfur, northeastern Nigeria with Boko Haram, um, the um, conflicts in the Niger Delta, Somali piracy off the coast of uh, the Horn of Africa. Climate and environmental degradation, often by outsiders, is at the root of much of that turmoil. The encroaching desert the forced migration, therefore, of people who were semi-nomadic herders into the lands of the uh, settled agricultural uh, people, Um, uh, competition for grazing land, um, land for crops, for water. All of these things have been intensified by climate change. uh, Fourth, the solutions are not military, and they will not be quick. They cannot be imposed from above or outside solutions that are imposed from above and outside without regard to local interests will not succeed. This means including women, youth, and civil society institutions as well as many others in the process from beginning to end, not just bringing them in to have them sign on and endorse and implement uh, the the peace resolutions um, imposed by or brought in by outsiders. And fifth, there will be no lasting peace, unless underlying grievances are addressed and remedied. And this can only happen if the people affected have a major role in peace negotiations and settlements from beginning to end. Now, how we get to that place is obviously extremely difficult. And um, as a historian, I don't have any quick answers for that. Um, But I do think that it's important to recognize what the real problem is before we try to tackle it. We have to understand what's causing these conflicts, what's at the root of it, who's benefiting from the conflicts. I mean, so often the peacekeeping forces that are brought in are interested parties who have supported one side or another or who benefit from the continuation of the conflict because they're getting access to minerals or oil. Um, and that's not going to work, <laughs> you know. So there are just some very, very basic things that if we don't understand how each conflict has originated and who the key actors are and what their interests are, we won't have a solution. So I will stop there. Um, Akalu will follow up, and then we'll have questions and answers. Thank you very much.
3: Uh, my name is Akalu Paulus. I'm originally from- Could you please use the mic even, even the wireless and the handheld mic would be- Yeah. Because that way you'll be able to be heard by everybody, it should be thank you. Originally I am from Ethiopia. Uh, BC has been speaking a lot about Ethiopia as an invader, as an intervener of uh, African politics. Uh, Regional politics. So uh, I came from that country, but I ran away from that country because I was uh, I was chased by you know uh, dictators in in my country. Uh, I came to the U.S. you know fled to the U.S. 14 years ago, 2005. It was just after an election. It was you know a fake election. There are elections every four years or five years in Africa as well, uh, but they, are, they happen just for the sake of you know, the donors, you know, to tell the donors that they are, they are holding elections. Uh, other than that, uh, uh, there is nothing that resembles uh, a democratic election. So I ran away from the country right after uh, the 2005 election because there, is, there was a lot of violence and you know, intimidation of people who advocated for human rights. Uh, so when Betsy uh, asked me to talk about the contributions of refugees and the challenges they face, I, I happily accepted and I'm here to talk about that. Uh, before I start talking about it, I just want to ask you couple of questions. How many of you know or heard about Albert Einstein? Albert Einstein. Okay. What do you know about him? Can anyone say? Smart. Very intelligent. Very He was a refugee. Okay. Uh, so almost you have you have touched the things that I was about about to say. Uh, he is a German-born physicist. Came to the United States in 1933, and couldn't go back to Germany. In fact, he denied his German citizenship and accepted a Swiss citizenship. I'm sorry if you do not comprehend me, because you know I came here as an adult, like after I was 44 years old. <laughs> so uh, I have a heavy Ethiopian accent. So pardon me for that incomprehensibility. Uh, but I will try. <laughs> uh, so Albert Einstein was a refugee, but he has contributed a lot to the whole world in, in, in terms of scientific research, in terms of you know, uh, molecular, molecular physics, you know, uh, about the atomic bomb, and you know, so many scientific issues but he was still, you know, a refugee. So refugees have a lot of contributions in the societies they they, they, they go into and integrate. Uh, One more question, just uh, hands up. (laughs) How many of, I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but how many of you are Descendants of Native Americans. Native Americans. Just one. So, who who who, who did America belong to originally? Native Americans. (laughs) So there is only one original. Uh, citizen of America. <laughs> All of us are immigrants. We came at different times. Cool. Yes? So just, you know, uh, you understand the the point I'm trying to make, yeah? So refugees are people who came from other places as a result of conflict or persecution or, you know, various other reasons in their own countries. So they fled to a neighboring country, and from a neighboring country, they are resettled to another country that is prepared to welcome them. So uh, America has, the U.S. has a long history of refugee, reset- refugee resettlement. In fact, refugee ad- admission of refugees into the, into the United States began right after the First World War, when many people in, the, in different European countries were displaced as a result of those wars. And then... The Second World War after 1945. Uh, most of the initial immigrants and refugees who were accepted into the US were mainly displaced Europeans and later on Asians, Indo Chinese, Vietnamese, Koreans, and people who were fleeing uh, communist regimes. The U.S. is, I mean, the former Soviet Union, China, the, Repu- the Republic of Korea, Cuba. So the Cold War, the influence of Cold War politics in in terms of even accepting refugees into the U.S. So it has played some some role, you know, uh, as Bitsy was trying to talk about uh, uh, the Cold War. So... How about uh, refugees in Baltimore? Uh, in Baltimore, in 2000, in 2000 uh, before I come to you know, refugees in Baltimore, refugee settlement in the United States was taking place in an ad hoc fashion. It was not organized. There was no, uh, you know, a universal procedure or process or law passed by Congress until, you know, the mid-1940s. But in 1948, the first uh, refugee legislation was passed by Congress, 1948, that uh, that legislation is called the Displaced Persons Act of 1948. As a result of that act passed by Congress, uh, almost 750 displaced persons were accepted into the country, m- mainly from Europe and uh, people fleeing from uh, communist regimes. The second act Congress passed was in 1953, Refugee Relief Act of 1953. As a result of that act, about 210 refugees were accepted into the United States. And then in between those periods, you know, humanitarian refugees were accepted, you know, by different numbers, almost almost every year. But there was no consistent, permanent legal provision to let refugees into the country. The major legislation (coughs) that happened was the 1980 uh, Refugee The Refugee Act of 1980. And as a result of that act, on that year, more than 200 refugees were let in into the country. And from that year onwards, the US was admitting between 25,000 to 200,000 refugees every year. And even to to this date, I mean, the current refugee admission for 2019 was 30,000. The previous year was 45,000. The previous year was 110,000. The previous year was like 180,000. It was up and down in terms of numbers, but there was a consistent flow of refugees into the United States, based on that refugee, the 1980 Refugee Act. As a result of that, Congress also approved funding for refugee resettlement. So a certain budget is assigned every year, and institutions were created, federal institutions were created To run refugee resettlement within the Department of State? My question was: who, it seems Congress decides the funding, do they also decide the number of refugees? Is it a congressional act? Uh, The president decides, but in consultation with Congress. That's why there are fewer
2: now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Trump administration
3: cut it way back. Uh, uh, As a result of that uh, legislation, a department within the Department of States, uh, the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration was created, which processes humanitarian applicants to enter into this country while they are still overseas in refugee camps in different countries. So PRM processes refugees, and once they are in, brought into the country, the Office of Refugee Resettlement under the uh, Health and Human Services, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services coordinates the resettlement process once they are into the country. So all these processes are financed federally. A budget is set and, you know, the reintegration processes happen wherever these refugees, you know, end up themselves within the U.S. There are refugees in the 50 states. You know, the the, 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 the numbers vary. Texas has the highest. California has the, the next highest. Arizona has the next highest. And we have our own share. Maryland. (laughs) Uh, Almost Maryland used to resettle almost about a thousand refugees every year until 2015 16. Uh, So in Baltimore, there was uh, a resettlement center. It was known, it's still known as. Uh, Baltimore Resettlement Center. It was established in 2000, uh, and a variety of refugee services providers were placed under one roof. The International Rescue Committee, Lutheran Social Services, the Hebrew uh, Immigrant and Refugee Association. I think I saw one person who works for them (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and other service providers like Department of Social Services and uh, Baltimore Medical System they were under one roof and providing different services Uh, and also Baltimore City Community College where uh, I used to work I used to work for the Lutheran Social Services as well. So these different organizations, housed under one roof, provide employment services, English language services, you know, other social services, housing, uh, immunization services. You know, ba- Baltimore Medical System takes care of all the medical issues of newly arriving refugees. Baltimore City Community College takes care of all the educational and English language services aspects of the reintegration process. The International Rescue Committee and Lutheran Social Services and the the Hebrew Immigrant Association, they bring in the refugees into the country. They pick them from the airport, take them to their apartments, they follow them up for up to 90 days to 180 days, the maximum. At that point, they have to be self-sufficient. These organizations are there to make these refugees self-sufficient, not be dependent on society. Uh, As a result of these integrated services by these different organizations, more than 20,000 refugees over the last 19 years in Baltimore have called Baltimore their home, and they work in different organizations, public, private, nonprofit organizations, as professionals in non-professional jobs, and uh, they are contributing a lot as consumers, as workers, bringing in different, you know, work culture, work ethics, neighborhood revitalization, they buy houses, they sell houses, they live within the community. You know, Baltimore has become a, a really multicultural and attractive place to some extent as a result of refugees. When I came 14 years ago, I lived around Patterson Park in a small apartment. That area was hardly inhabitable at that time. Now, housing prices are like, have gone through the roof. (laughs) Many refugees, both small, small houses there and, you know, the, the the neighborhood became so stabilized. Now everybody can freely and fearlessly can walk at any time of the day <laughs> in that neighborhood. So that is a contribution that these people have brought. Uh, but they also face a lot of challenges. People have, people still have misconceptions about refugees. They still have some myths about refugees. They do they don't differentiate. Still many people don't differentiate between a refugee or asylum which has a legal status, which has been brought into the country by the government. They are in a program that is federally funded, but still people think these are undocumented immigrants. So you know the, the sentiment people have towards undocumented immigrants. So when, you know, I, I worked for Lutheran Social Services as a job developer. Uh, I was taking refugees, my fellow refugees, <laughs> to different emplo- em- employment agencies or employers for interviews or for, you know, various you know, application processes, and there was a lot of resistance by employers. I try to uh, teach them. You know, I have this I nine I nine form, the uh, employment employment verification form. It talks about refugees there, but not many business owners know about that detail. So they say, "Oh no, 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 no. Does he, uh, does he have or she has a, a legal documentation or this or that?" You cannot, you know, run around, you know, to every organization with a bulky uh, document. Uh, So, that has, at some point, like, you know, has consumed a lot of time. People who would have, who should have gotten a job earlier were delayed in getting the job. That means... They continue to depend on public, you know, resource. Uh, so uh, these were some of the challenges. Uh, there were also some security, you know, uh, challenges in some neighborhoods. You know, uh, fighting between you know refugee families and uh, residents. Uh, there were times when. Baltimore City Police were involved in providing safety, you know, driving after the school bus, you know, just to protect refugees from being attacked by, you know, someone. <laughs> uh, so these are some of the challenges that they, you know, they, they run away from fear, you know, scary political situation, traumatic situations, and they they faced a similar situation here. You know how depressing that could be (laughs) for people. Uh, And some professional refugees, highly professional, educated, PhDs, masters in economics or accounting or other professions, because of the regulation of professions, this is part of the protecting, you know, our economy, our professions. I mean, every country does it to some extent. (laughs) Uh, It is very difficult to penetrate into the professions, professional immigrants, refugees, who have fled their country, not by their simply own volition, they did not leave their country voluntarily. I did not leave my country voluntarily. Believe me. <laughs> I never left my country voluntarily or to make money. I used to make money, more money there. But my first job here was folding towels in a towels company somewhere in Rosedale. So my my feet was hurting, like eight hours a day, folding, pulling, pushing, you know, loading, unloading, driving a truck, unloading this. It was like torturous for me (laughs) the first, like, three months. It was like a boom from where I was professionally. I used to consult internationally. I'm an economist by profession. I did a lot of economic research. I published papers. I spoke at conferences internationally in universities, colleges, different meetings. I traveled internationally in four continents, and they came here. I was folding towels. (laughs) So it was like, what should I do? Should I go back? Where should I go? How can I go back? I have no home. I have become a stateless person. And I can't move up here. It was frustrating. So I volunteered here, I volunteered there. You know, I would rather volunteer and live free, <laughs> rather than break my back. I wouldn't benefit from that. I'm losing my profession, working as a child folder. So I started volunteering to non-profit organizations for free. I gave my time for free and you know, learning about the workplace. You know, relearning, starting from scratch. But this frustrates many people. And it takes them into somewhere that they have never thought about. Sometimes <laughs> negative thinking or you know uh, pessimism develops when people have no way of moving up or horizontally or vertically. It's difficult. <laughs> uh, so these are some of the challenges that refugees face. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much, Betsy Agula. Um, we can now open it up to more of your questions, and I will bring the microphone to you so everyone can hear.
0: Hi. Hello. My name is Senior, and I am a PhD candidate. and I'm working on crisis, transnational identity, transnational identity, and international migration in mm. Africa. And my question—I have two questions. The one is the link between the foreign intervention and the increase of um, terrorist attack in Africa. For example, if you take the, some part of Africa, for example, uh, the West Africa, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the last decade, there is a kind of increase of terrorist attack, and some actors in Africa linked that to the collapse of the uh, Gaddafi uh, regime, uh, linked to the France and, and other countries like the U.S. intervention. there. I- is there really a link between the, uh, the dictatorship collapse thing and the increase of terrorist attack in, in West Africa?
2: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yes, actually the um, the uh, Libya and the Mali case studies and also uh, Northeastern Nigeria with Boko Haram are case studies in the book. And I do argue that the international intervention that was purportedly to protect civilian lives in Libya but really had an unofficial motivation of regime change, getting rid of Gaddafi, um, is very much linked to um, the um, disintegration of Libya into um, uh, warlords, militias, um, town-based, regional-based militias, civil war with one of Gaddafi's former generals, trying to take over the country, just pandemonium, which opened the door to al-Qaeda and now the Islamic State. And that the release of Gaddafi's weapons and also his fighters who had been recruited from other countries, many of them went back into Mali. Um, they, at that point, were not terrorists, but they were part of a Tuareg uh, liberation movement that was not linked to any particular... Um, um, Islamic group, although they were Muslims, um, but when they declared independence in a, in a part of Mali that had been very much neglected and abused by the government in the south, um, <clears throat> they um, this resulted in a French intervention, uh, and then um, various other African countries intervening, and al-Qaeda got involved. And um, this, you know, brought al-Qaeda into a place that it had not been before, and then uh, Islamic State emerged. They began to then target, as they were being shut down in Mali, they began to target um, civilian populations who were unprotected, not only in Mali, but in Cameroon, in Niger, countries that were contributing troops to the French-led and the um, African Union-led, UN-led forces. So it's very, very much connected to uh, an increase in in um, violent extremists uh, in, in those cases. Boko Haram, um, many of those fighters were trained in Mali after um, uh, the collapse. Um, um, I, I did forget to mention that when um, the government in the south felt that the i 'm um, um, sorry, when the military felt that the government based in the South was not performing well against the Tuareg nationalists, he could he waged a, a military coup, an army captain he had been trained by the United States, and he waged a coup. He took over the government, um, and so that you know there are all kinds of uh, uh, forces at play. Um, Somalia, I already mentioned, violent extremism uh, increased there Al Qaeda came in where it had not been before uh as a result of the CIA and Ethiopian and then finally Kenyan and African Union involvement. Um, the Western Sahel, well that's Mali, but some of the other countries as well, uh expansion of Al Qaeda and Islamic State uh with this sort of disintegration of the of the governments. Yeah.
0: And the second question is about the the refugee integration in the US specifically in Baltimore the question is, because when you look at Baltimore, there are many uh, group of, kind of ethnic group of refugees in in Baltimore, and when you look at, you realize that some are doing well, and and they do have a strong community here, and they are kind of, um, do they have the same, do they face the same challenge in terms of integration for example, I volunteered two years here with uh, the refugee com- come from, I was a matter of refugee youth coming from Congo. And one of the first challenges was uh, um, the language, because they came from a uh, French country. And during that period, I realized that there are some group of refugees like Cameroon and Ivorian. They do not have a, a strong community here, and sometimes the situation they are very difficult. I want to know if the refugees have faced the same challenge. How each group trying to uh, to overcome that challenge? Thank you.
3: Uh, definitely, different groups have different challenges. Also, their own background. Uh, you know, people coming from Cameroon, English-speaking Cameroon, they are almost, you know, at a good start when they come in. They speak English. They also, they are, most of them are educated. There aren't many refugees from Cameroon. They come here as visitors, and they never go back. These are asylees. Most of them are professionals. Congolese, Sudanese, South Sudanese, uh, uh, Darfuris. You know they speak. And most of the you know the refugees from these countries are also women. They never went. They never held a pen or a pencil. Even in their own country. So, coming here and learning a different language, speaking, writing, communicating in writing is a huge challenge. So, the, the, the challenges they face differ based on their background education, their background languages, and also community support, as you said. Those who have been here for a long time, like uh, Nigerians, Liberians, they have strong community organizations of their own. They, they do a lot of advocacy, a lot of education within the community, and also grassroots support. Uh, but obviously, the challenges are not the same. Also, the resettlement agencies and (coughs) the other service providers also differentiate. We don't have the same kind of approach, you know, when assisting this kind of refugee and this kind of refugee. We try to look and analyze their needs, and we start from where they are and build capacity from, from there rather than everybody together and you know uh, uh, offer those services yes uh, this question is for P- uh, Professor Smith uh, thank you for your book I look forward to reading it um, as, as a kid I watched the end of, of colonialism in Africa uh, early 1960s Uh, uh with a lot of hope. I named my uh, son Kwame Nkrumah. Um, and, but I saw a lot of um, disappointment there with tribalism and, and corruption. And uh, one of your takeaways, you said that African actors are not absorbed from the crisis. So I would like if you could just give us an um, a update on the state of tribalism and corruption in Africa and how that contributes to uh,
1: the problem there. Thank you.
2: Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think, you know, it's easiest for us to understand if we look at our own country. <laughs> and when we realize that in times of economic and political uncertainty, in times of crisis, in times of scarcity, um, that people circle the wagons and they protect those close to them, those best known to them first, and depending on the the nature of the crisis or the scarcity, that circle may be very small or it may be larger, 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 so that people think of their family, their neighbors, their extended family, their town, maybe their ethnic group or their religious denomination, or, um, you know, and the farther they get from home, the, the bigger it may be. Oh, that person's from my home state, or, you know, my students who study in, say, Japan, you know, I say, well, when people ask where you're from, what do you say? Well, I say I'm from the United States. Well, if you're in the United States, what do you say? I'm from New Jersey. If in New Jersey, what do you say? Well, you say, you know, your hometown or your neighborhood. Well, in Africa... There's a huge scarcity of resources, and I've mentioned the devastating impact of climate change, and this is really exacerbating those things. But so are these conflicts, um, uh, so that as people um, are forced to move because of the encroaching desert, the lack of water, droughts, floods, all these other things that are coming from climate change, they're moving on to other land that's already inhabited by other people, and they begin to have conflicts. So... In Nigeria, in the Middle Belt, where there are conflicts between herders and farmers, it's often presented as a conflict between the Fulani herders and the farmers of other ethnic groups. And indeed, that is often how people identify, you know, who's with me and who's perhaps a threat. Um, Or Christians and Muslims, same thing. Um, How do you identify who might be in your close group you want to protect and who might be angling for the same resources. So Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria, that's presented as a a violent extremist Muslim group. This is an area, well, it is a violent extremist Muslim group, but it didn't start out that way. It started out as um, a nonviolent group that was attacked by the police, its leader killed, its members killed, driven underground, et cetera. Um, But the people who have joined uh, Boko Haram have tended to be young men in one of uh, Nigeria's poorest areas. One of the reasons it's so poor is that it's in the basin of Lake Chad, which has shrunk dramatically since the early 1960s. Um, It's just a fraction of the size it used to be, which has destroyed agriculture, herding, and the fishing industry. And so these young men have no employment prospects. Because they've been neglected by the government, they have no formal education. They therefore can't marry because they don't have property. And if they can't marry, they can't be full-fledged adult members of society. That's kind of a prerequisite, a wife and many children. And so here, you know, hopelessness is really what's at the root of this. And then who do they target? Well, they target people who are different or people who are privileged, people who have more. So Boko Haram means Western education is forbidden. That's not their real name. It's a sort of nickname. And it's not that they're necessarily against Western education, but they don't get it. They don't have access to it, and the people who do have access to it are the ones who are putting them down and brutalizing them. And so it's really complicated, right, that what is easiest to see is an ethnic difference or religious difference or regional difference. But underneath it all is the haves and the have-nots, just like here, you know.
4: We have time for two more questions.
3: In your book, do you have any examples of countries which um, were the condition in which the conditions were the kind of conditions in which outside outside parties would intervene causing more chaos that emerged successfully Ooh. into uh, a safer more
2: Thank you. That's a good question, and I'm sorry to say, not yet. And part of this is because, as I mentioned, um, it will take a long, long, long time to undo and rebuild, um, undo the structural problems that exist since colonialism, and to rebuild in a different way. And it takes political will to do it. It takes leaders who will not become the privileged elite taking all the resources, grabbing all the opportunities. There are few people anywhere who are willing to to, to do that. So it's, it's, the power holders have to be willing to give up some power. Just like, you know, Americans have to give up some of the standard of living that the, you know, well-off Americans are used to if we want to save our climate, our, you know, our global existence. And, you know, a lot of people aren't willing to do that. Um, um, and so this is one of the reasons it's so tough, that um, the the desire to do something often means that something is done, but it's not the right thing. So a peace settlement is signed uh, in 2005 in Sudan, and uh, it gives the people in the South the right to um, vote on an independence referendum in 2011. And... Um, and And so they de- declare independence, and they take all the oil resources from Sudan. but Sudan keeps all of the pipelines and all of the ports and all of the refineries that 's not going to work you know, and so the conflicts between these countries have continued, but by golly, those outsiders got that two thousand and five peace settlement um, uh, right before the american elections <laughs> um, you know in, in two thousand and six, the midterm elections so um it's it's really difficult because the interveners, even those who are supposedly involved in humanitarian missions, often are interested parties that have supported one side or the other or who have an interest in a certain outcome. Or, in the case of warlords, you know, sitting down at the table, an interest in continuing the chaos and disorder because that's how they get the diamonds in Sierra Leone. Uh, Or Liberia. That's how they get the oil in Nigeria. Um, That that continued conflict, the lack of law and order, is the way they enrich themselves. Um, So that's what the tough thing is: um, is how to do this. Um, And you know, I've said, well, what outsiders need to do is support local initiatives by civil society organizations. Um, they know what's going to work, they know what need the, what they need, and stop giving money to the powerful elites, to the governments that are going to undermine that um, every step of the way. Stop thinking, "Oh, this time it's going to work. no, it's still not going to work. i mean you're, you're arming and financing the people who have an interest in retaining a monopoly on power and resources so it 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 will be a long, long time, yeah, but it could happen, you know. Okay. Maybe here, too.
4: <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm just going to step over here. I don't like having my back to anyone. Um, three quick questions. One, in your research and your work, have you found that the major thrust and motivation of foreign intervention on the continent of Africa, is it white supremacists racially motivated in terms of ciphering off the natural resources of the continent and also um, causing political... An economic instability to prevent African black folk of the continent having autonomy themselves. That's one. Second, have you seen any African black country on the continent developing an indigenous, sufficient, um, and and healthy for black African people political system that could emerge into the new millennium as a model? for African black countries and hope perhaps for the continent to develop up and also for the gentleman here I um... teach a social justice theater program from a trauma informed perspective Mm. for Baltimore City youth Mm. but I've also worked with adults who have been incarcerated and dealing with dismantling white supremacy sexism and misogyny and I would love to be able to connect if you feel as though it could work with other black African Resettled folk in Baltimore to use the therapeutic type of theater I do to um, help them orientate themselves to the continent. I just wanted to get in real quick because they were just weighing on my mind. And I'll just wait for your answer.
1: Okay.
2: Thank you very much. Well, that's a lot to do in a few minutes, but um, um, I'll, I'll say that let me just step back into the period of decolonization and the Cold War to talk about alternative models, alternative visions that Africans had of their society, there were a number of African leaders who opposed what is now referred to as neocolonialism. And neocolonialism is a new form of colonialism, right? Like there was a new form of slavery um, uh, after the abolition of slavery. So um, neocolonialism is where... Um, the, the, um, uh, as Kwame Nkrumah said, um, we're in office but not in power. Right? That the political and economic structures are not being permitted to change, and this is outsiders, former colonial powers, new Cold War powers, that do not want to change in the system, that extracted r- labor and resources from Africa for the benefit of people elsewhere. And yes, they, they were white people for the most part, um, Europeans, uh, Americans, um, to some extent the Chinese, but um, much less than the others. So um, um, so the neocolonial systems um, were pervasive. That's what the co- colonizers set up as what they expected in the aftermath. Okay, we will turn political power over to these people, but they will be people beholden to um, outside countries, outside corporations. They won't want to change the, the economic structures to benefit the local people. Those... African leaders who resisted, Patrice Lumumba, Kwame Nkrumah, Sekuture, um, um, Julius Nereri, there are many, um, and wanted to find a third way, a non-aligned way, an African way, they were undermined. And they were undermined economically, they were undermined politically, and often they were overthrown or even assassinated um, by outside powers, Predominantly from the West, and therefore, yes, white led. But um, um, so, yeah, racism is definitely a factor. I mean, absolutely can't be minimized. Uh, that this kind of behavior towards other countries would have been far less tolerated. Um, in um, um, the global north, although it certainly happened. I mean, during the Cold War, you know, the the Greek and Italian um, and French communist parties were undermined by um, CIA and and other activities. So um, it isn't only in the global south, but it's more pervasive in the global south, and um, the, the broader American public is less concerned about it. I mean, I can't tell you how hard it was to get places to say, yeah, you can come and talk about your book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> W-Y-P-R, nope. W-A-M-U, nope. You know, it's, it, no, no interest. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I I'm I was in the midst of retiring, so I had all this time on my hands. I was going to be my own agent, and I was beating the bushes, you know, the universities and the um, radio stations and I, I got so many non-responses or no's. You know, it's, it's amazing because people say, oh, well, you know, that's Africa. And, yeah, <laughs> well, what if it were France? <laughs> Would you care then, you know? So, yeah, I, I, I think that's it's a very important factor. So um, there were some experiments, so-called experiments, that weren't intended to be experiments, that did survive uh, through part of the Cold War. In many cases, they, like Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown. Um, Secuture fended off a Portuguese-backed invasion. He did become a dictator. It's not clear he would have been if he hadn't had all of these plots against him. You know, there's a what-if history. Um, Patrice Lumumba, as I'm sure you know, was assassinated by the CIA and Belgian intelligence with some local collaborators on the ground. Um, But, as I said in the beginning, there are also African actors who are benefiting from this turmoil? So the one issue I would take with the way you framed it is that it isn't only white supremacists involved in this situation. There are Africans who are elites who are corrupt, who are profiting, and they often are tied to these outside interests, like Charles Taylor in Liberia, American-educated, um, you know, totally corrupt and brutal warlord. Became president, um, um, so you know they 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 have their role and they're not just puppets. I mean they've got their own agendas, and I think we have to unfortunately accept that that, that you know that they they are just operating on the end of a string. So anyway, I know we need to stop, so I should let you respond to the part of the question addressed to you, Akalu. Um,
3: I, I really I really appreciate the services that you are providing. Uh, I no longer work for the refugee resettlement agencies right now, but I can still create connections for you so that you know you, they have access to your services.
4: And please, don't, uh, as my students say, get it twisted. Born and raised in on what's been happening in our city over the last four years with the police department and our former mayor? I know that black folk can be bad Mm -hmm. and exploited. So I'm under no delusion about that. But as you can see in the instance of Baltimore, they have been linked to larger white economic political entities.
2: That's who dominates the economy and the politics. Absolutely.
4: Well, thank you all for your insightful questions. Um, Betsy and Akula, again, for your knowledge. Um, and, again, thank you all for spending your evening with us. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center.
3: For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.